I gave a brief introduction to the life of Luisa Picaretta and some of the miraculous phenomena that accompanied it. So now I want to begin looking at the content of her writings and the message they contain. Obviously, the large quantity of Luisa's revelations and writings must be analyzed by theologians. And to take everything contained in them as literal truth without proper qualification could be a recipe for disaster. Just the way we don't read scripture apart from the church and its teachings. Which is why I suspect the definitive editions and translations will probably not be released without an accompanying commentary or at least footnotes that help us to properly understand them. Remember that scripture, tradition, and magisterium are not judged by Luisa's revelations, but rather the other way around. It is these permanent, unchangeable, and unquestionable foundations of faith that are to judge, qualify, and specify all private revelations. If it seems that something we read in Luisa's writings contradicts something you read in the Catechism, then in humility and obedience, we must absolutely choose submission to the Catechism and seek out someone more learned and orthodox to explain the seeming contradiction. On November 22, 1900, at age 35, the Lord made known to Louisa that he wanted to give her an extraordinary gift, the gift of the divine will. This particular grace which God gives to the creature from himself is a special and free gift. Through Louisa, God desires to send the message of the divine will that she would be a messenger of this grace in which the Holy Spirit wants to renew the face of the earth with the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven and so enrich humanity. As the years progressed, the Lord revealed to Louisa profound and even deeper insights into the divine will. His purpose was to seek perfect fulfillment in Louisa of the third petition of the Our Father. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is also called the fiat petition because it's first words in Latin. Fiat voluntas tua, sicut in cielo et in terra. He taught her that the three great phases or fiats of God's work are the creation, redemption, and sanctification. The first fiat let it be done. We read in Genesis, was that God spoke, and with his word the whole universe was created from nothing. Let there be light. The second fiat, as we read in Luke, was pronounced by the Most Holy Virgin in response to the announcement of the angel. I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This is Mary's fiat, or yes to the Lord. Let it be done to me. The Catechism, paragraph 973, says, By pronouncing her fiat at the Annunciation and giving her consent to the Incarnation, Mary was already collaborating with the whole work her son was to accomplish, including the subsequent redemption of mankind. The third fiat was left to us by our Lord Jesus in the great prayer of the Our Father with those divine words, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Fiat voluntas tua. 
The sanctification will be completed when this divine will is done on earth as it is in heaven, where the angels and saints perfectly carry out God's will. Louisa was called to live this life of the divine will within her own soul, and her writings are to inspire and teach others to do as well. And this will help bring about and fulfill that sanctification, which would bring with it a new era of love, the era of the third fiat. To back up a bit, we can begin by examining the inner unity of the three persons of the Holy Trinity. What is it that binds the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so closely in union? Yes, they share a common divine nature, but they're still three distinct persons. They're united not only by relationships of love, but especially by their common divine will. This is not just like three friends who happen to be in agreement on something. There are not three wills in the Trinity, but only one divine will. And what is this will, this desire of the Holy Trinity? It is to extend their life-giving love, to share their unity and their life with creatures who can receive and return that love. And thus God wills that creatures would come to share in the divine life that the three persons of the Trinity share and be united in that one holy divine will. Thus God created not only the angels, but a universe and a world and all things that exist to praise him. He desired to create this place of peace, order, and harmony where his will would be done. And thus he created a new creature, one in his image and likeness, capable of receiving his love and living in his will. Adam and Eve before the fall, before original sin, were the first two humans to live in the divine will. Their will was so closely aligned to God's will that the two wills were in union, working together in harmony, such that even their mundane actions, like tending the garden, were acts of praise and blessing to God, because through them, God could enjoy and rejoice in his creation. I don't know if this is the best explanation, but Sometimes I've had this image in my mind, that maybe you had too, of God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve before original sin. We use that language, but yet God doesn't have a body with feet. The sun hadn't yet taken on our human nature. No, God walked in the garden because Adam and Eve walked in the garden. And there Actions in union with the divine will became divine actions, actions of God. There was not the slightest impediment between the will of God and their being, and therefore their acts were reflections of the same light of God, revealing his divinity in the world and allowing all of creation to praise him. Unfortunately, due to original sin and the loss of this original gift of divine life, Only two other human beings have lived this same grace. Jesus and Mary. 
both fully actualize the potential of their souls to live in perfect union with God, with their will in perfect union with God's will. Of course, this might be easy to think that Jesus, as the divine Son, the second person of the Trinity, would perfectly unite his human and divine wills. So easy, in fact, that during the 7th century, a heresy developed known as monothelitism, which said that Jesus Christ has two natures, but only one will, the divine will. But the church teaches that Jesus' humanity is not different from our own. He fully shared a human nature such that he was fully like each one of us. And so while still possessing a divine divine nature, in Jesus the two are not confused or altered into some kind of hybrid. And the one is never so absorbed by the other to the point that it becomes lost. Therefore, Jesus possesses a true human nature, which includes having a true human will, which he fully united to the divine will. But for us who are not divine, the Blessed Virgin Mary is the quintessential model of living in the divine will. For her dignity surpasses that of even Adam and Eve. And through Our Lady, God demonstrates just what marvels of sanctity is capable of working in a created human being. And in Louisa's revelations, we learn that God's will is not that Mary remains alone in such a lofty state of sanctity, merely for us to gaze upon from a nearly infinitely inferior position. On the contrary, it is his will that we too rise up to her level so that our holiness, our sanctity becomes like hers and glorifies God in a similar way. Now, this doesn't mean that any creature or any of us will ever come close to Mary in love and in sacrifice, and nor does it take away from the many singular privileges that God bestowed on her such as being the sovereign queen of all heaven and earth, the mediatrix of all graces, and above all, the mother of God. For all eternity, these attributes will be hers and hers alone, and all creatures without exception will praise her as our queen. Nevertheless, through the gift of living in the divine will, we're called not just to imitate Mary, to become like Mary in holiness. And the supreme example of Mary living in the divine will is at the Annunciation, that moment of the Incarnation. In the Incarnation, the infinite entered into the finite and in so doing exalted it to the divine realm. The Catechism states in paragraph 460, quoting Athanasius and Aquinas respectively, for the Son of God became man so that we might become God. And the only begotten Son of God, wanting to make us shares in his divinity, assumed our nature so that he made man, might make men gods. Yet before this incredible moment of the incarnation could take place, our redemption begins. 
The Catechism tells us in paragraph 488, the Father of Mercies willed that the incarnation should be preceded by the ascent on the part of the predestined mother. We must always remember that Mary still had free will. Although she was free from sin from the first moments of her conception and chosen from among all women, she had still had to consent to God's plan in her great fiat. Again, that Latin word meaning let it be done. Let it be done to me according to your word. In the breviary each year, we read on in Advent on December 20th, a beautiful reflection by St. Bernard of Clairvaux, which dramatically celebrates Mary's response to the announcement of the Archangel Gabriel. Allow me to read his words in praise of the Virgin in full. You have heard, O Virgin, that you will conceive and bear a son. You have heard that it will not be by man, but by the Holy Spirit. The angel awaits your answer. It is time for him to return to God who sent him. We too are waiting, O Lady, for your word of compassion. The sentence of condemnation weighs heavily upon us. The price of our salvation is offered to you. We shall be set free at once if you consent. In the eternal word of God, we all came to be and behold, we die. In your brief response, we are to be remade in order to be recalled to life. Tearful Adam, with his sorrowing family, begs us of you, O loving virgin, in their exile from paradise. Abraham begs it. David begs it. All the other holy patriarchs, your ancestors, ask it of you as they dwell in the country of the shadows of death. This is what the whole world waits for. Prostrate at your feet. It is right in doing so, for on your word depends comfort for the wretched, ransom for the captive, freedom for the condemned, indeed salvation for all the sons of Adam, the whole of your race. Answer quickly, O virgin. Reply in haste to the angel, or rather through the angel to the Lord. Answer with a word. Receive the word of God. Speak your own word. Conceive the divine word. Breathe a passing word. Embrace the eternal word. Why do you delay? Why are you afraid? Believe, give praise, and receive. Let humility be bold. Let modesty be confident. This is no time for virginal simplicity to forget prudence. In this matter alone, O prudent virgin, do not fear to be presumptuous. Though modest silence is pleasing, dutiful speech is now more necessary. Open your heart to faith, O blessed virgin, your lips to praise, your womb to the Creator. See, the desire of all nations is at your door, knocking to enter. If he should pass by because of your delay and sorrow, you would begin to seek him afresh, the one whom your soul loves. Arise, hasten, open. Arise in faith, hasten in devotion, open in praise and thanksgiving. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, she says. Be it done to me according to your word. Mary becomes the mother of God through her yes. Thus the church fathers would develop this thought of Mary's faith and obedience, of how she heard the word of God and believed, and therefore first conceived Christ in faith, which is what allowed that word to enter her womb and be conceived and bear fruit in her. 
Pope Emeritus Benedict in his book, Jesus of Nazareth on the infancy narratives has additional commentary you can read on the moment of Mary's fiat. And Pope Benedict even describes how Mary placed herself within the divine will. He says, Mary answered the angel, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me as you say. Thus Mary anticipated the Our Father's third invocation, your will be done. She said yes to God's great will a will apparently too great for a human being. Mary said yes to this divine will. She placed herself within this will, placed her whole life with a great great yes within God's will, and thus opened the world's door to God. Pope Emeritus Benedict continues, Adam and Eve, with their no to God's will, had closed this door. Let God's will be done. Mary invites us, too, to say this yes, which sometimes seems so difficult. We are tempted to prefer our own will, but she tells us, be brave. You, too, say your will be done, because this will is good. It might at first seem an unbearable burden, a yoke impossible to bear, but in reality, God's will is not a burden. God's will gives us wings to fly high, and thus we, too, can dare with Mary to open the door of our lives to God, the doors of this world by saying yes to his will, aware that his will is the true good and leads us to true happiness. I think Pope Remnant describes it well. By placing her entire life in the divine will, Mary opens the doors of this world to God uniting her will to his and her yes is exactly what we are now invited to do. The gift of living in the divine will is to understand that God does not want only one fiat in all of history to be so great and pleasing to him. Rather, he wants all acts of his creatures to be reflections of that perfect and quintessential fiat of his beloved handmaid. So that just as Mary's fiat preceded the very incarnation itself, so our fiats may, as it were, cause many incarnations as acts we undertake. But even that is seemingly not enough. Now that God has willed to bestow this gift upon those who desire it, He also calls us to spiritually redo all the acts of creation, past, present, and future, in the divine will, as they would have been were the fall to never have happened. And as he himself did throughout his earthly life, for whatever Jesus does as the head, we do as his body. The point is not to pretend that we can change the past. However, what God is calling us to do with this gift is to repair the acts of the past, to ensure that the present has the proper relation to eternity, and even to prepare the future mystically, taking it into ourselves. We do this by the intention with which we undertake all the ordinary acts that form our days. In this way, living in the divine will allows our actions to be divine actions, which have that power to make reparation and rectify creation in all times and places, something that would be impossible for any human action. 
We, we strive to sanctify our, our actions in this way, in the divine will, through some special prayers given to Louisa, such as the rounds of creation and the hours of, of the passion, both of which we'll be discussing later. Here is where the revelations of Louisa Picaretta make a new and startling claim. That we're not just speaking about trying to do the divine will by imitation. But the gift of living in the divine will means exactly that, to live it. We're called to no longer engage in simply human actions, but in divine actions. It is not simply human modes of praying, but the eternal mode of prayer. In the prayer book, Father Joseph Nuzi uses an analogy. The human mode of prayer would be like going through a cemetery from one tombstone to the next as we pray for the repose of each soul, one at a time. But the divine mode of praying would be like flying over the cemetery in a plane and being capable of simultaneously praying for the souls of everyone that is buried there. And not just that, but even including all those who were buried there in the past or will be in the future. And not just that, but not just that one cemetery, but all the souls of all the cemeteries of the entire world. Listen to how Louisa prays in the hours of the Passion at the 3 p.m. hour. Jesus has just died. His heart was pierced with a lance. And she prays. Oh, my Jesus, after your most harrowing and sorrowful death, I do not believe I should be free to live my own life. Rather, I ought to rediscover my life in your wounded heart. And that which I must do, meaning whatever daily tasks I do, I shall always do by drawing grace from the sacred heart of yours. I will no longer give life to my own thoughts. Should my own thoughts demand life, I will draw such life from your thoughts. No longer will I give life to my own will. Should my own will demand life, I will draw such will from your will. No longer will I give life to my own love. Should my own love demand life, I will draw such love from your love. O my Jesus, your entire will is mine. Such is your will, and therefore it is also my will. Perhaps you're quite used to using the language of striving to do the will of God. I know I am. That's always been a part of my spirituality and discernment. In each decision, trying to do God's will. But now we're invited to move even a step deeper and live in the divine will. The difference is that Jesus gives the gift of acting with his will that divine eternal will of loving with his divine eternal love, of living with his divine eternal life. In other words, when something is done in his will, we're no longer just doing a human action, but divine actions. Even if it seems the most ordinary human things like getting dressed or eating. For example, when we receive the Eucharist, we, re- we believe that Jesus 
real presence under the appearance of the consecrated bread and wine remains present as long as those accidents remain. So when we receive the body of Christ and the consecrated host, depending on your metabolism, he'll remain in you for about 15 minutes or so until digested. But now, through the gift of living in the divine will, even when the host is digested, the divine presence and divine life of Jesus is perpetuated in the soul. Thus, the soul who lives in the divine will becomes a living host, another Jesus, interceding on behalf of mankind. So how do we receive this wondrous gift of living in the divine will? Quite simply, because it is a gift. We must ask for it and desire it. It's in prayer that we fan the flames of our ardent desire for the gift of living in the divine will. Make that desire a roaring fire. And we do this especially through the Eucharist. Eucharistic adoration and frequent communion approach with unbounded reverence, fervency, trust, and love will be a sure means of calling down the divine will upon your soul. As one author explained it, the golden rule of living in the divine will is we desire it and Jesus does all the work. It doesn't sound so hard now, does it? We desire it and Jesus does all the work. Each and every day we must explicitly ask God for this gift of holiness, the gift of living in the divine will. The request should at least be made upon rising, along with your usual morning prayers. In Louise's writings, this is referred to as the prevenient act. And I gave you that copy on the handout, uh, that, which is a brief version of the prevenient act, which begins, O Jesus, through, within, in the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I consecrate and give my will to you in exchange for your divine will. I truly want your divine will to generate its divine life in me this day, to think in all my thoughts, to speak in all my words, to operate in all my actions for the glory of our Heavenly Father and to fulfill the purpose of creation. I think we can take a lot of consolation in this prayer because I know, at least for me, when I go through the day, I don't remember to pray at every moment. I don't continuously remember and think about how everything I'm doing should be an offering to the Lord. I'm frequently forgetful to thank him for the joys and blessings that come throughout the day. I'm not very good at uniting each one of my actions and especially each one of my sufferings with the passion and cross of Jesus. But at least... I have the intention and the desire to do so. Prevenient is Latin, simply means coming before. And therefore, before we begin the day, before we do the actions, preferably then in those first moments upon awakening, we're invited to pray the prevenient act. Ask God to give us this gift that living in the divine will, all our actions throughout the day will be perfected and sanctified because they share in the infinite merits of Jesus and our divine actions lived in union with the divine will, hastening to bring to fulfillment the realization of the kingdom as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Of course, saying a morning offering like the prevenient act doesn't excuse me from actually praying throughout the day and actually making offerings of my works and sufferings. So the goal of praying the preventing act is that it will lead us to make the actual acts in the present moment throughout the day. We simply renew our intention and ask God to work in our memory, intellect, and will so that every heartbeat, every breath, every step is done as continuous praise as it is done in the divine will. I'm sure this is a woefully brief introduction to the gift of living the divine will, but we will continue, of course, in the further talks to go deeper. But allow me to again cite Pope Emeritus Benedict. This is from a general audience in June 2008. I think he explains the concept. The height of freedom is the yes in conformity with God's will. It is only in the yes that man truly becomes himself, only in the great openness of the yes, in the unification of his will with the divine, that man becomes immensely open, becomes divine. What Adam wanted was to be like God, that is, to be completely free. But the person who withdraws into himself is not divine, is not completely free. He is freed by emerging from himself. It is in the yes that he becomes free. And this is the drama of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours. It is by transferring the human will to the divine will that the real person is born. It is in this way that we are redeemed. And if you're still not convinced, St. Alfonso Sigori has an entire treatise on uniformity with God's will. He tells us, The pure and perfect love of God the saints enjoy in heaven consists in uniting themselves perfectly to his will. A single act of uniformity with the divine will suffices to make a saint. Absolutely true, because he who gives his will to God gives him everything. He who gives his goods and alms, his blood and scourgings, his food and fastings, give God's what he, gives God what he has. But he who gives God his will gives himself, gives everything he has. Such a one can say, Lo, I am poor, Lord. I give thee all I possess. But when I say I give thee my will, I have nothing left to give thee. This is just what God does require of us. My son, give me thy heart. Proverbs 23. St. Augustine's comment is, there is nothing more pleasing we can offer God than to say to him, possess thyself of us. We cannot offer God anything more pleasing than to say, take us, Lord. We give thee our entire will. Only let us know thy will and we will carry it out. In other words, again, the saints in heaven are perfectly living in the divine will. 
And we're to strive to do exactly the same by asking for and receiving this gift. Your will be done in me as it is in heaven. And then St. Alphonsus continues and notice how he distinguishes from merely conforming to God's will, that is simply striving to do his will, and calls us to something deeper, a complete union with God's will. If we would completely rejoice the heart of God, let us strive in all things to conform ourselves to his divine will. Let us not only strive to conform ourselves, but also to unite ourselves to whatever dispositions God makes of us. Conformity signifies that we join our wills to the will of God. Uniformity means more. It means that we make one will of God's will and ours, so that we will only what God wills, that God's will alone is our will. This is the summit of perfection, and to it we should always aspire. This should be the goal of all our works, desires, meditations, and prayers. To this end, we should always invoke the aid of our holy patrons, our guardian angels, and above all, our Mother Mary, the most perfect of all the saints, because she most perfectly embraced the divine will. So I invite you in your quiet time, now or later today, that you could attempt the following simple spiritual exercise. Place yourself sitting or kneeling, in front of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, or in front of the monstrance. Perhaps put your arms at your side, resting in your lap, or your your palms facing towards the tabernacle or monstrance. And in this posture, meditate upon everything you hold dear. Not just possessions, not just friends, not just family, but even your intentions, your plans for the future, your desire to avoid certain things and to pursue other things, your temporal hopes, your good works, your very self, everything. Meditate on simply dumping it all out in front of the tabernacle for Jesus to do as he wishes. Envision this like casting that small pebble of your will into the infinite sea of Christ's divinity, which dwells in all its fullness, mere feet in front of you. Tell him that you do this with all your freedom, with all your love, and with all your desire to be filled with nothing but his divine will. You can converse with him in your own words, as you would with a trusted friend. Or you could use words like the sushi pray prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will. All I have and call my own, you have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.